0: to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all ideas filtered through history, mythology, philosophy, and where they bubble up into our popular storytelling. As always, I am very stupendously excited for this episode. This one has a little special excitement for me because in many ways, this episode was kind of... My brainchild, I really wanted to do this episode and have been lobbying for this episode and trying to bring my co-host and co-partner and co-podcaster along. And finally, it is here. You broke through my resistance. As many of you know, I have this side podcast called Wheel of Ka, a passion project where me and the co-host Steve read a book of Stephen King's The Dark Tower and discuss it and from this passion for the Dark Tower has emerged a very strong passion for the works of Stephen King. And to be fair, I'm really new to Stephen King, so I can't say I've read all of his books, not even close. I've barely scratched the surface of his bibliography. But in, in line with my Stephen King appetites, if uh, for lack of a better term that I have, came this show called Castle Rock. Now, Castle Rock is on Hulu, And it takes place in the quote-unquote Stephen King universe. So it's set in Maine, and all of the characters and places and themes are all either heavily inspired by or drawing from some Stephen King story or not. Stephen King is famous for having a connected universe in which all of his books live in, and they all feed into the Nexus or the Dark Tower. And Castle Rock is living in that universe. In other words, Stephen King was the first person to do a multimedia-connected universe narrative in the way that we think of, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now. And Castle Rock lives in that. Now, in 2019, Castle Rock came out with season two. And I must say, Midnight Myth listeners, I loved it. And we are here with our Castle Rock season two Discussion. We are going to talk about the season as a whole. If you haven't seen it, it's on Hulu. Go and watch it and come back to us because we will spoil the living heck out of it. And I just got to say, I cannot wait to talk about this show.
1: I'm really excited too. Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, you met a little bit of resistance in me and that you had to kind of ply me and, and figure out how to convince me to do this episode. And I was a little resistant in the first place. Uh, but now that we have done this preparation and now that we're sitting down to do this episode, I could not be more stoked to do it. Uh, And I think, you know, I hope that our listeners who found us through the Wheel of Ka are listening to this episode, and I hope that listeners who usually listen to us as The Midnight Myth will find some inspiration to maybe read, uh, pick up a Stephen King book, and maybe join you guys on the Wheel
0: of Ka. Nice little bridge. Listen, all things, even the beams, serve the tower, Do you think the Midnight Myth podcast would be any different? Sure. Absolutely not. (laughs) All right, so I can't wait to talk about it. Spoiler wall is up, but we do actually have some really cool plugs and announcements coming. Um, So, Laurel, take it away. Do your thing.
1: Well, so if you wanted to uh, keep in touch with us or be the first to know any updates or news from the Midnight Myth, what you're going to want to do is follow us on social media, especially Twitter. We are at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, and you can also check us out on our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for more information. Uh, there are blogs there. You can sign up for our email list to get uh, all kinds of announcements and updates. That's also where you'll find a link to support us on Patreon or purchase merch from us in our merch store. And we would love, love, love to have you repping The Midnight Myth with a t-shirt or a onesie or whatever you need. Uh, we do have one uh, exciting announcement uh, regarding future content on the Midnight Myth.
0: Oh, we're we're announcing this now?
1: Yeah. Oh, if I'm this excited. Is this okay with you? Oh no no,
0: let's do it. Let's announce it.
1: Um, we have been talking about doing a uh, series for a little while. Uh, this is just going to be a series of episodes coming out starting next week and continuing for a few months. Uh, we are going to be revisiting a story universe that means the world to us. It means the earth. It means the Middle earth to us. Um, We are going to be reading through uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings series, starting with The Fellowship of the Ring, and doing one podcast per book. Uh, This is super exciting for us to go back to the literature, go back to the source, and extract the history, mythology, and philosophy, and just explore these books that inspired us so much and are a huge part of why we do the podcast. Uh, So I'm really excited to do that. We will also bring in, you know, some of our insights from the Peter Jackson films. But if you want to read along with us, please do. We will be bringing in some exclusive insights from the books. uh, And those episodes will start coming out next week. And we will continue doing those.
0: Yeah, very excited about this. Just to clarify, we have just finished reading The Fellowship of the Ring. Next up is going to be The Two Towers, obviously which we will not have ready for in two weeks time. It's going to take us longer to read it. So follow us on social media so we can tell you when we'll be doing the two towers episode. And uh, I can't wait to go get my hands in middle earth again. We did two episodes way back when we first started in our first year. And we felt that though, that those were very good episodes and episodes that we learned a lot um, by doing and helped us become better podcasters at the end of the day, I don't think we did enough justice to Tolkien and I can't wait to do this Tolkien series.
1: Yeah, uh, it also feels like an auspicious time to be taking this task Uh, on because as we were reading and preparing to do that work we learned of of course the death of Christopher Tolkien the son of J.R.R. Tolkien who was the greatest advocate and editor for his posthumous works Uh, so that will be you know a project that we undertake with that great burden of knowing that uh, you know Christopher Tolkien passed along all of this knowledge of Middle Earth to us.
0: Well, before we get too deep into talking Tolkien, there is another amazing writer's work that we need to examine in this week's podcast. So let's talk Castle Rock season two. I am all in. I I think it's worth just do a brief recap of season two of Castle Rock. I'm not going to touch every single episode. Really, really just like surface level.
1: Yeah, just high level.
0: So, Castle Rock season two features a few main characters, one of which is Annie Wilkes, who will be the antagonist in a Stephen King book you may have heard and movie called Misery. I think it's a little bit popular. I'm not sure. Yeah. This is very much an origin story for this character as she's traveling around the country, robbing hospitals for antipsychotic medicine with her and her daughter Joy, whom we learned is actually her sister. She finds herself in the town Jerusalem's lot. In the uh, care of a vicious and mean landlord by the name of Ace Merrill, who is the nephew of Pop Merrill, and Pop Merrill has one of the other protagonists, his adopted daughter, Nadia, from Somalia. We find that these towns are in the middle of a cultural crisis in which Somali refugees are starting to build their own Somali sort of community business, almost like a shopping mall, which is pulling people out of the shopping mall run by Ace. A lot of things happen in which we find that Ace gets killed in the first episode by Annie, in which she stumbles upon an ancient burial site of presumed witches, maybe Satanists, and... Every single person that dies, that ends in this sort of mass grave, gets resurrected and has the body of a 17th century French colonist. We learned that these colonists were the cult that originally founded the town Jerusalem's lot and that they worship this mysterious angel and the prophet who is Amity, who gets to translate the words of the prophet. Long story short, the cult ends up resurrecting and inhabiting the bodies of several town members and at a festival for the 400 year celebration of both castle rock and Jerusalem's lot. They unveil a statue of the angel, which hypnotizes the town. And we learn through flashbacks and dialogue that their goal is to take possession of the entire earth and that the lake in castle rock operates as a door to different dimensions by which presumably the angel will pass through who is also a character from season one commonly dubbed as the kid or Henry Deaver from another dimension. Annie Wilkes with the help of Nadia and Pop Merrill end up thwarting this plan by planting dynamite under the ground, blowing up the statue, freeing the town's members, killing, uh, Ace Merrill inhabited by the French, uh,
1: Père Augustin.
0: Thank you. Perel Gasson, and she narrowly escapes with her daughter joy who was supposed to be the vessel of the prophet Amity. in this we see annie wilkes being convinced that her daughter slash we learn actual sister joy is in fact still possessed by this french spirit she drowns joy to death only to learn that no it wasn't in fact true she was joy the whole time Annie's fantasy, she resurrects Joy from death, and they travel to go see the talk of their favorite author, Paul Sheldon, who is the character in Misery, realizing that she has, in fact, killed Joy. It's worth noting that we get the full backstory of Annie Wilkes as a dyslexic teenager who struggled academically, pulled in to be homeschooled with her father. When her mother kills herself, her father remarries um, her tutor, Seeing this as a betrayal, she accidentally kills her father. She tries to kill her stepmother and kidnaps their baby's half-sister and then adopts her and raises her as her own. And that's the recap. And by the way... I don't pre-plan these recaps. I just go, and I'm just going to give myself a pat on the back for that one.
1: I think you deserve a pat on the back. That was a pretty good recap. It's like the angel or the muse spoke through you and fed you uh, the actions of the plot. It was very good.
0: It's like I'm a Satanist worshipping a cult of an interdimensional worm. Oh, sorry, wrong story. it's a
1: lot like that, but...
0: (laughs) All right, first question for you. This is Castle Rock season two. If you are a long-term fan of The Midnight Myth, you may have noticed that we didn't do a Castle Rock Season 1 episode. So first question for you, Laurel, why do you think The Midnight Myth, us, why are we starting with Season 2?
1: I mean, that's a great question. Uh, We both got sucked into Castle Rock Season 1 kind of right away when we uh, saw it drop on Hulu, and I think we binged it pretty quickly. Um, And that was a really fun season of television. I enjoyed every second of it. It was a top-notch mystery. It drew me back into the Stephen King universe, something that you were very much immersed in at the time as well because you were reading through The Dark Tower Um, and just a a tremendously worthwhile season of television. Um, But it wasn't until season two that we felt deeply compelled to get behind the mic and talk about this show. And I think part of the reason for that is that in comparison to season one, season two offers a, a glimpse into not only the history of Castle Rock and Jerusalem's or Salem's Lot, but into the history of America Uh, You know, it gives us two uh, really compelling timelines of 1619 and 2019 and asks us to interrogate the problems and the challenges of both of those time periods. And history is something we are deeply compelled by. Uh, It also gives us an origin story of one of the great villains of cinema and literature in Annie Wilkes. Uh, It gives us a really rich uh, you know, fertile ground for us to kind of cultivate the the work that we do on The Midnight Myth, which is understanding history, mythology, and philosophy through storytelling. I think that this really gave us that uh, on the next level compared to season one.
0: I just love that you talked about the cultivating oh, yeah. <laughs> land. <laughs> yeah. Great callback to the fact that the original cult, their problem, was that they couldn't grow anything in Jerusalem's lot.
1: Yeah, it was not fertile ground. It was
0: not at all. So I love where you, you're, you're going there. And generally speaking, I agree. I think season one of Castle Rock is awesome. I loved it. Yeah. I was a huge fan. But in terms of the exact mission of the Midnight Myth, I don't think it bore as much fruit as season two. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I'm interested in examining season two of Castle Rock is is the way that it it both uh, plays with the individual psychological dimensions of storytelling and the sociological de- developments of, sor- of storytelling, pardon me. It is both a story of a community and of individuals. Yeah, And it balances those very well. That characters are compelled by their own individual psychological needs, whether that's the need to be independent from a father figure like Ace Merrill, um, whether that's the need to um, please that same father figure in Nadia or whether that's the need to be a stable mother when you are suffering from debilitating mental illness like Annie Wilkes. Yeah. And so there's that psychological development motivating the characters on the first level and each one gets fleshed out. We see a little bit of everyone's backstory. Then through the actions of the town and through going back in time, And seeing the origins, the colonial origins of the town and its failings, we start to get to see the sociological elements. So we see a community that is struggling to integrate a new refugee population. Yeah. You know, and that is a a stress point within this community. How do they, these two seemingly incompatible um, community identities, integrate into one? And they boil over in the characters of Ace. And And Abdi. And Abdi. Yeah, sorry, I almost blanked on his name. Who are literally trying to kill each other. Right. Because they can't figure out a way to coexist. Even though they have the same father figure, they've had the same resources.
1: They've grown up together. They're both
0: kind of like wannabe gangsters. Like they, they really should be working together, but instead they're rivals. And then we have these two communities in Castle Rock and Jerusalem's lot. I'm trying to work together to perform just a basic thing like a ceremony for the 400th anniversary. Yeah, and in in this, I think littered throughout the entire season are these little uh, intellectual Easter eggs for us to unpack. And through the midnight myth lens of history, mythology, and philosophy, I think this one poses better questions for our project compared to season one. And because of that. Man, I gotta tell you, I loved season two.
1: Yeah, I did too.
0: Liked season one, loved season two.
1: Yeah, same. Um, I want to kind of start our analysis by uh, hitting on something that you just said in your reasoning for why uh, you know this season was resonant to you. And that's um, in part because of the widening scope. Instead of just focusing on one corner of Castle Rock, we're focusing on, Castle Rock and Jerusalem's Lot, two communities, two cities with rich histories of their own uh, and the sort of institutions and people uh, and social conventions that connect them uh, and the shared history that they have together as they are celebrating their 400th anniversary in 2019. the hospital where a lot of the action of the show takes place and where both Nadia and Annie work is called Du Vie, uh, French for two cities or two villages because it serves both the Castle Rock community and the Salem's Lot community. And that word, uh douvie, two cities, pinged something very specific for me that I think offers quite a bit of insight into the events of this season. And that's the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah.
0: All right, let's do it.
1: So if you are not familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, I'll explain it lightly to you. It comes mostly from the book of Genesis, verses 18 and 19. Oh 19 boy. is significant because that is an important number for Stephen King. And it's also repeated in multiple places in this season of Castle Rock.
0: It's all gone 19, man. Everything is 19.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So in uh, Genesis 18 and 19, God reveals to Abraham that he is going to destroy the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they are so grievously sinful. Uh, Now Abraham has a nephew named Lot who lives in Sodom, so he tries to negotiate with God to spare the cities if he can find any righteous people still living there, Uh, and God sends two angels to meet with Lot to presumably determine if there are any righteous people living there. But the inhabitants of Sodom arrive and try to break down Lot's door as the angels are dining with Lot, who has been very welcoming to them. The angels strike the mob blind and allow Lot and his family, who are the only righteous people left in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to escape as God destroys both cities in fire and brimstone Uh, and now one of the most yikes yeah one of the most famous parts of this story is when lots wife uh, looks back at the cities as they're burning and she turns into a pillar of salt because she's staring back at them Um, frequently in discussions about sodom and gomorrah you'll hear it used as an excuse for why christianity looks down on homosexuality uh, because there is a huge debate about what the sin is of Sodom and Gomorrah that required them to be destroyed. And of course, Sodom is the root of the word sodomy. So it has traditionally been equated with homosexuality. And one of the reasons for that is that there's a line uh, in Genesis where the angry mob says to Lot, quote, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight? "'Bring them out to us so that we may know them.'" End quote. And that's variably translated as so that we may have sex with them or we may have intercourse with them. So to know implies carnal knowledge there. But that doesn't necessarily um, get to the point of what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. And today, most biblical scholars uh, will say that it has more to do with the tendency toward violence of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the lack of hospitality uh, shown by the rest of the citizens versus the hospitality that is shown by Lot. Uh, Hospitality is an ancient uh, code in many cultures that like, having a guest in your home requires a certain level of decorum, requires a certain level of respect. You're not supposed to kill your guests, things like that. Uh, And so there is some evidence, even in the New Testament, that suggests that this was more about uh, hospitality than uh, a sexual sin.
0: You just said the New Testament, you mean Old Testament.
1: No, in the New Testament. So uh, biblical scholars will refer to a quote of Jesus's in the New Testament where he refers back to it and says uh something along the lines of if you don't welcome these people if you're not good to them then your your sin is greater than Sodom and Gomorrahs.
0: Yeah, you know that's interesting. The ancient morality around hospitality has to deal with a, a lot of factors, but this was in particular um it, it considered one of the greatest sins was to refuse hospitality. Yeah. Because Getting from point A to point B in the ancient world is really difficult. So if someone comes to your door as a traveler and says, man, I need a place to sleep, I need some food in my belly, it's probably because they've been traveling for weeks, if not months, and are probably near starving to death. There are several ancient cultures that talk about the hospitality uh, morality. Ancient Greece has several myths on it. Ancient Egypt has some ancient Babylonia. So it would make sense that the ancient Hebrew would as well. And it's a interesting story to bring up. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just kind of diatribed on the side there. No, I
1: think that's very helpful. And I think there are a number of parallels that we can point out from this biblical story to the season of Castle Rock. But on that subject of hospitality, I think that distinction is important and that interpretation is important for our discussion here because One of the pains that is being felt by both the communities of Castle Rock and Salem's Lot is how to welcome refugees and immigrants into a predominantly white community that has a long white history. Uh, So it is facing, uh, you know, the need to integrate and facing the need to welcome the people who are vulnerable and need uh, space and support. Uh, at the same time, a hospital is the locus of so much of the action of this season, uh, and two of the, the major characters are uh, nurses or doctors or caretakers of some form, and that implies a certain level of hospitality that I think needs to be pointed out in concert with this story. Some of the other parallels that I would point out, other than uh, just the two cities, uh, would be some character parallels that I uh, I can list here. I would say that Pop, Pop Merrill, played beautifully by Tim Robbins, is kind of Abraham. He's the patriarch of the Castle Rock and Salem's Lot community, Uh, and Abraham is the great patriarch of the Old Testament. He communicates between warring parties, so especially Abdi, his adopted son, and Ace, his nephew, who are trying to destroy each other. They also feel a little bit like a Cain and Abel pair there. And he's trying to save family members from destruction. So just like Abraham negotiated with God to say, hey, don't destroy these cities because people I love live there. Pop is hoping to uh, give any bit of himself to negotiate with higher ups, whether they are the cops of the communities or they are ace as inhabited by uh, a Puritan from 400 years ago to make sure that the people he loves can escape.
0: Whoa, that blew my mind. Yeah, that that literally blew my mind. And his sacrifice, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, his sacrifice eventually allows the only righteous people or the only non-possessed people left in Castle Rock to escape. So Nadia, Joy, Chance, and even Annie uh, and Abdi get out and are able to live and continue their lives because he, uh, you know, gives a sacrifice, which Abraham was always willing to do in the Old Testament. Um,
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned that that is. Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his son and he goes to sacrifice his son in a ritualistic human sacrifice, which is another major theme of this show, which is human sacrifice. And at the last minute, God says, just testing you, wanted to make sure you would be willing to sacrifice your son. Now that you showed me that you will, just sacrifice this goat here. And human sacrifice is a huge theme of this where the entire events and the entire uh, plot point revolves around joy being sacrificed so that uh, enmity can live exactly. and every single person that gets murdered and then gets the the cult to reinhabit them is being a is a human sacrifice. So the idea that through the spilling of blood others can live and others can grow and others can spread is a very ancient idea, one that Abraham participated in. I love it.
1: Yeah, Um, just a couple of other parallels here. Uh, The angels who strike the mob blind uh, sort of echoes the statue of the angel at the parade, uh, hypnotizing an entire crowd uh, and causing them all to fall in line and become blind uh, metaphorically. While that is not necessarily a uh, direct parallel, uh, I think that some of the motifs are similar enough to be worth mentioning. Um, I have a little bit of trouble figuring out who Lot's wife is in this scenario, but I have a couple of suggestions here. Um, It could be Joy, because she can't stop looking back at her trauma and her experience in Castle Rock. She continues to doodle uh, pictures of the angel uh, and she kind of longs to get out of her mother's grasp as though she's trying to go back to what happened her, to her there. Um, and she's also the one who eventually loses her life, so she's punished the way that Lot's wife was punished when she was turned into a pillar of salt. Um, or it could be Annie, uh, who is the one who loses the most. Uh, she is punished by you know, being forced to strike down her own daughter, the one that she loves the most. But I might argue that it's Nadia, because she's the one who is looking on and pressing the button and pulling the trigger uh, as the Marston house, the symbol of this Castle Rock-Salem's Lot connection, goes up in flames. She's the one who is physically looking back, losing her father, losing her connection to the community that brought her up. Um, But I just think there's some interesting sort of ways to interpret that in different ways to read it with regard to the biblical story.
0: Yeah. Very cool. You know, the one thing that I don't think tracks to me would be to understand Annie as Lot's wife. Yeah. I don't think. Does Lot's wife have a name? Or is she just Lot's wife? Lot's wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's patriarchal as shit. Oh, it sure is. I do think that Annie, Annie to me is closer to Abraham than it is to Lot's wife. She sacrifices her child. Yeah. Um, She is fanatically de- dedicated to things. Whatever she gets dedicated to, it's 100%, whether that's uh, her delusions or her daughter, or, you know, then Sheldon, the author Sheldon that she becomes obsessed with. So she has this sort of religious zeal, I will follow without any like regard to cost or consequences. And um, she is also, you know, kills her father and her daughter.
1: Yeah, yeah. At least
0: symbolic daughter, adopted daughter, if not literal daughter.
1: Right. Um, And I don't think necessarily that any of this has to be one-to-one in order to be worthwhile. Um, I think that just in the same way that Castle Rock is, I think the best way I saw it put was that it's a mixtape of Stephen King's greatest hits. It takes some of his... Uh, most iconic characters and storylines and uh, locations and sort of jumbles them up and creates an original story. It's also taking these incredibly old and baked-in motifs from one of the greatest stories ever told, one of the best-known stories ever told, which is the Bible. Uh, I think there's biblical imagery written all over this season of Castle Rock from the first scene when we see a young Annie uh, you know, attempting to drown this baby in the river and then choosing not to. She's kneeling in the water with this child, thinking they're both going to die, and then they both come out reborn in this symbolic baptism, an image that they both return to in the end. Um, I think there is, uh, of course, this focus of the cult who are coming out of a more Puritan society, a, a deeply Christian society, and uh, subverting those expectations and sort of changing their uh, their worship and ritual, I think that's uh, biblical imagery is all over it.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Should we talk more about this uh, sort of Puritan split cult and their origins, where they come from?
0: Yeah, I I think that'd be interesting. One of the more, I think, um, intriguing aspects of this show is that it takes us back in time to 1619 in the early 17th century, and it shows us a French colony in New England and what they're going through. And it kind of defines them within the iconography and language of Puritanism. And one of the questions that I had kind of going into this in terms of my own historical research, because I'm always looking for the historical angle, was asking the question, who really were the Puritans? And what is a Puritan? Is that different than any other type of person of that time? And the Puritans are Anglican, so they're English, so right out of the gate, there weren't, as far as I could find, actual French Puritans, at least not in the way that we remember them here in America. And what they were is they were really upset when King Henry VIII, in the late medieval, early modern period, broke England out of the Catholic Church and formed the Church of England. And in it, he modeled the Church of England off of a episcopal style of belief. Now I've come to learn that means that this is a church which has and appoints bishops, bishops who have a large degree of control over how the church is organized and how it's run. In other words, Henry VIII structured the court. Or, pardon me, structured the church off of the Roman Catholic Church model. The Puritans believed that every single individual has the ability to have a compact with god and should have their own compact with god anything that you do in the practice and worship of your faith that doesn't have a specific biblical reference anything created by human beings is impure by its very definition and doesn't belong in your individual um covenant that you have with god in this the term puritan was uh coined by the people trying to stifle this movement.
1: Yeah, it was a pejorative, right? It
0: was derogatory. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, you know how you, we're not going to have fun? Why? We're going to have the Puritans here. Yeah. It was meant as a insult and it was meant as a way to slow down and stime the movement. In it, there were actual people that in this time period came to believe that the Church of England was itself unholy and they wanted to segment off they sat and this history is very long and complex so this is by this is a gross simplification but they ultimately got persecuted by the state the idea that there is a difference between the state and the church is a total modern manifestation of how we think about power in society during this time the church and the state are one so to be against a religion is to be against the state and hence you would get punished often quite violently through torture and executions and really shitty executions like being burned alive. So the separatists, the people that wanted to break off completely because they were being persecuted, were the ones who fled to the new world. We call them pilgrims. Pilgrims are not Puritans. And that, I thought, was an interesting historical distinction. The pilgrims, the early pilgrims, were the people who could find no place to worship, and hence they came to the colonies and they settled mostly in the territories that came to be called New England, which is still taking that, t- that title today, that part of America, still called New England. Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, where, Connecticut, Stephen- yeah. where Stephen King lives and is from. And most of his books have something to do with that area of the country. Now, the Puritans mostly stayed in England and were pushing for reforms until it really got to the point where they couldn't and some of them started to flee as well and come to the new world. This idea of a individual covenant with God that is pure by its very definition and anything that doesn't have a biblical precedent is wrong led to these early colonies being themselves very strict oppressors of religious freedoms and religious thought. So as soon as they escaped oppression, they instantly started to oppress. As far as I'm aware, and if anyone out there knows differently, hit me up on Twitter at Derek C. Jones 198 or at The Midnight Myth. There weren't really French Puritans. So the idea that the show plays with a French colony is a bit of a historical subversion of, This this colony would have likely been Anglican or English in its makeup and its nature. So the fact that they switch it and make it French, very cool. And that we see French words in there, it's almost as if it's saying it's kind of like Puritan, but it's not really all that pure. And what do we see? We see the priest is having sex with the governor of the town's daughter We see that um, the town is unable to cultivate and grow in the land, which most of the colonies, when they first came to the quote-unquote new world, had trouble growing food because the soil, the plant life, the topography, it's different in America than it was in Western Europe. So you can't just come and plant the same shit you're used to planting and grow it the same way. You got to
1: figure out corn. Like that's your first, that's the first thing you got to figure out is corn.
0: And so there were lots of colonies that struggled to grow food and starved and suffered. And that's where we see this actual colony in it. It's starving, it's suffering. And there is, the daughter is um, fighting against the father who exiles her and exiles the priest. In comes the angel. This is one of the more, Interesting elements, I think, worth unpacking in the show. How does this this town, a French colony, become a cult? A cult willing to all kill themselves. And what is this shadowy angel figure who bears the physical resemblance of the kid? What are we to make of this? Learning now that there are things called multiple dimensions in the show and that the lake is a doorway to these dimensions, how then can we read the emergence of this cult from a starving and sad Christian community to now engaging in idolatry, burning people on upside-down crosses, and ultimately be called Satanist by their, um, you know, their kin who have come to settle this 400 years later? Well, how do we know that they're Satanists? Are they Satanists? One big clue is that they burn people alive on upside-down crosses. Turning and inverting a cross, even back in the early 17th century, was considered a devil-worshipping symbol. It's taking the symbol of Christ and inverting it. So if you went to someone's home and they had an upside-down cross in the early 17th century. And you told the authorities, that person was being burned alive. This is also during the time in which there are the start of, especially in England, the witch trials.
1: Yeah, which then will spread and take over just a mass hysteria in New England.
0: Absolutely, in Salem, but really horribly in England. A lot in more, Scotland, yeah. You know, witches, quote unquote, quote unquote, witches were burned alive in England and Scotland and in America, absolutely. but it does come to America as well. So there's some suggestion that, hey, and they're burning the crosses. So they're literally burning the crosses in fire, and they've crucified people on it. So they're taking the symbol of the crucifixion, they're inverting it, and they're lighting it on fire. Other examples that maybe they are some kind of a Satanistic or devil-worshipping cult, when we see Amniti commune with the angel, she returns with bushels of food, as if the food was magically supplied. We don't see them planting. We don't see them growing. We just suddenly see enough food for a season appear out of thin air miraculously. Another evidence that this angel is perchance, you know, buying souls with food in some sort of satanic ritual or cult. But then we see some other curious things. They don't self-identify as Satanists.
1: The, no, I mean, they believe they're speaking to an agent of God in the angel.
0: And they believe that this world is theirs. Um, but other just disturbing imagery, the insects, the insects that seem to prevail everywhere. We had a debate with whether they're locusts or sequoias. Cicadas. Cicadas, pardon me.
1: Both of which are interesting uh, sort of symbolic interpretations. If they're cicadas, then we can relate them to uh, the the mass suicide that occurs here because cicadas are... Uh, an insect that burrows underground and hibernates for years at a time. They can hibernate some species up to 17 years before re-emerging and essentially being reborn, which is sort of what the cult is doing uh, with their hibernation slash suicide and rebirth.
0: And then locusts, which is the biblical imagery of a plague of locusts who go out there and consume everything. So if you have locusts consuming your crops, you'll have famine. We have a cult in famine. And what do they want to do when they are reborn in the modern, in our current era? They want to consume everything. They want this earth to become theirs, and anyone and everything in their way should be burned alive and killed. So they operate somewhat like locusts. Yeah. But also, insects generally considered aesthetically ugly by humans. They're not associated with inner virtue or associated with nobility the way like a bald eagle is but they're just they're associated with disgust and revulsion and consumption now this isn't fair to the insects of the world who are a vital part of our ecological and environmental makeup but you know in terms of the rhetoric and metaphor using insects as the like foreshadow of this cult rising is clearly meant to have some sort of unholy metaphor
1: yeah absolutely
0: all of this is to say is is the show saying anything about religion in any broader or individual context we see any one of the heroes of the show who is to become a villain seems fairly secular pop and nadia definitely heroes of the show seem fairly secular joy seems secular so it is, and it is, what is one of the first things and the first individuals post-ace to be corrupted by this cult? It is the town parishioner. It is the town parishioner who then unveils the, the totem or idol, which hypnotizes the, the crowd at the anniversary of the 400-year anniversary. Is it saying anything about religion?
1: Wow, I mean, I think that's a really good question and not one that I had necessarily prepared for. And all my thinking about all of the ways we could line this up with uh, especially Old Testament stories, I hadn't really thought about the broader commentary that it's making on religion. And so I'm glad you're asking this question. Um, for me, I think that it is in many ways uh, cautionary in how it uh, you know, asks us to examine where we put our faith while at the same time showing us a community that puts their faith in something that that we as viewers see as pretty evil, right? We see the the angel figure and this body snatching cult as uh, not virtuous. We see them as bad, but they get what they want most of the time. The angel delivers, and so for them to be overcome, it takes uh, you know people doing great and almost impossible deeds and laying down their lives and, you know, rushing headlong into explosive battles. So we have this kind of tension between a show that's telling us to uh, be cautious about where we put our faith, but also showing us, you know, people who get what they want, even by worshiping uh, what appears to be a devil.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there. I would also add the layer that, yes, be careful where you put your faith into, but it also advocates against a material relationship oh, with sure, religion. Sure, M.T. communes with the angel, the kid, and gets food. And then from that, she gets power. And because that she can get food, she can get power. And then she uses that power to have everyone murder themselves only on the the hope to be reborn. If that isn't the standard, like awful cult narrative. Yeah. I (laughs) mean, that's,
1: that's heaven's gate. That's what happened in the nineties when, you know, 39 people uh, drank phenobarbital thinking they'd be reincarnated on a UFO. It's just so interesting that in this season of television, they do get reincarnated they do, you know, their prophecy comes to fruition. So that's why I think, you know, it adds this level of complication. It's warning against this material relationship, but also showing them uh, get what they want. I just think that's really interesting.
0: Well, do they get what they want? So they don't get the earth as they are promised. They don't get the return of the angel. They don't get the return of their prophet. In fact, their evil machinations get thwarted and clearly they're the antagonist. And I think we can read that, When people are desperate, when people are feeling the fabric of who they are start to rip apart, that anything that provides a comfortable and easy answer, they will grapple towards. And once indoctrinated in that comfortable and easy answer, they can easily turn from regular, good, decent folks to body-snatching spirits from beyond the veil. Yeah, And... I think the one of the most interesting visual metaphors is this 400 year anniversary of a whole group of people who are dressed up like the Satanists yeah. and joking around and playing, seeing this idol and becoming automatons. The idea that you can easily be swayed by the shiny object at the state fair. That thing that you think is innocent and good can also be turning you Against yourself. It can be pushing your core identity so far deep down that you have enslaved yourself spiritually and mentally. And I think that idol represents that enslavement. In other words, I think there's a metaphor about the American dream happening within this show through our main characters, Nadia, Pop, and Annie. So Nadia is a refugee in America who has gone from having her parents in her own country murdered, having to flee to save her life, being adopted into an American family, and then by the virtue of her own talent and will and grit, becomes a doctor who is one of the top doctors. So great is her doctorship that she chooses to go back home and leave the big city that she is this great doctor and is running a hospital to help her father. You have Pop who is a veteran, a soldier, who comes back from the war and violently, in a gangster style, seizes control of an entire town and bends it to his own will, knowing that his force and his his true grit can bend this entire township so that it is now all ostensibly his. And then you have Annie, a hopeless mentally ill wanderer who never got diagnosed or never got the treatment that she needed that has left her so hollow that the only true language she's able to speak with clarity is the language of violence and death and in the ability to coerce others through this violence we see that in the way that she lashes out against her father and stepmother we see this in this violence in the way that she lashes out against Ace and ultimately, when she kills her own adopted daughter, enjoy. And in these three different pillars, these three really well-done and well-drawn characters, we see different versions of America competing against what? Sl- enslaved body stealers. What is body stealing and enslavement, if not a metaphor for the actual slavery that America has done? Right? What is this but saying that there's a part of America that has always crushed individuals so deeply and so completely that they become vessels, that they become human cattle, right? They use the word vessel to talk about the people that they've murdered and that they've inhabited it, right? So you have this one that says power by any means necessary with religious fervor, that is fundamentally evil and unholy. And then we have these three different versions of America We have the white man soldier. We have the immigrant pulling herself up by the bootstraps. And we have the mentally ill nurse who is just trying to protect her daughter from this evil. And it's telling we only really get to see what happens to Annie post this. And Annie succumbs to the evil and becomes herself the villain in the next story to come. We don't know what happens to Nadia. You know, we don't really know what, ha- we know what happens to Pop. He chooses to finally do something noble and good and not self-interested by sacrificing himself so that others can live. And uh, I think there's an interesting critique there. America has always been a disparate nation built on covering up some of its past evils by burying things with the next generation willing to try to dig those things up and accidentally stirring an entire swarm of locusts that come piling out of our history. In other words, if that's too poetic and metaphoric, if we don't contend with who we really were, we can never really make sense with who we are, and it doesn't empower us to define who we're going to become, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
1: well, the past is not a foreign country. It lives with us. Uh, And as we see in the 400-year parade, 1619 and 2019 get to live side by side uh, in the literal sense that there are uh, people from 1619 walking around in the bodies of people from 2019 and in the metaphorical sense that, uh, you know, the generations that are alive today are trying to celebrate their heritage and trying to celebrate their history and where they come from, wearing the costumes, celebrating the food and the stories and the journals of their Uh, you know, ancestors, they are trying to dig up that past the way that you just said it. Uh, And so it it, it behooves us to be honest with that past that we do dig up. You know, there's an interesting statement of theme in the first episode of the season of Castle Rock when Annie is speaking with Joy and she realizes that they have to spend a little bit of extra time in this town that she said was so evil and was so bad. She says there are two kinds of people in the world searchers, and settlers. There are people who will never be satisfied, who will always have to keep looking, who will always keep reaching for more, who are always searching for the quote-unquote laughing place. And then there are settlers who find a place and will make that place home and will continue to uh, barrel down and home that place up more and more every day that they spend in it and that she sees herself as a tension between these two things. She's a searcher who just wants to settle. And I think that gives us an insight into this point you're making about the American dream. Uh, We have in Castle Rock and Salem's Lot a place that some people are stuck, a place that some people have been all their lives or have been for generations, a place that some people are dying to get out of, a place that some people are passing through and have to stay a few extra days because their car broke down, and a place that some people choose to come to because it's better than where they came from. It's a community that's full of both searchers and settlers, and we see in it this kind of incredibly complex tapestry of what America looks like today, living side by side with what America looked like 400 years ago. Um, I think it's an incredible testament to uh, the to how far we've come, but also how many new problems we have today. So we see that in 1619, the settlers were unable to cultivate the land and had to form a relationship with a demon uh, to get some food. And in 2019, we see a world where a hospital basically knows that any patient they get is going to be suffering from an opioid overdose. So 400 years later, people are still suffering uh, in unique uh, but localized ways. Uh, You know, no matter how much time has passed, there still isn't a solution for uh, everyone in this community.
0: Totally agree. I could continue to go on and on and on for days. But one last subject I wanted to bring up, if you don't mind, before we wrap. Go ahead. How do you understand the quote unquote, the kid? The idea that the the character from Castle Rock season one that is jailed is now seemingly loose, presumably the same character wearing these black robes. At one point, these robes turned completely red in the finale, the last episode, where They're just about to sacrifice joy so enmity can re-inhabit her body. He appears, but his robes are completely red at that point. How do you read this character in this season? One, is it the same character from season one? Um, Two, if it is or isn't, what does this character represent in this show? You just called him a demon, for example. Do you believe... This character is a demon.
1: Uh, I said that kind of offhand, uh, but I don't necessarily think it's all the way off. I think that really is the question of the show. That was the mystery that really propelled the first season uh, and felt like it had been abandoned in season two until the last few episodes when he was revealed again. Uh, And we got a little bit of an answer in that he had revealed himself to uh, this cult in 1619. So he is a much older evil or older presence in Castle Rock than we had suspected. Um, I'm not sure if I am equipped to answer this question yet, or if the show will continue to ask it as it goes on. I feel like uh, there are certainly uh, figures in the Stephen King universe that he corresponds to. I think, uh, you know, that he has a, a presence that feels connected to myths about Satan and the devil, but I wouldn't necessarily call him those things. I might call him, you know, the Mick Jagger version of those things. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Um, yeah.
0: The dark towerist in me can't help but notice that he's wearing black robes the way the man in black sure. wears them in particular in the dark tower series. There's a lot of chatter out there among the King fans to Ask the question, is he Randall Flagg? Is he literally the man in black? Is he Walter O'Dim? And if you're a Stephen King, Dark Towerist like myself, you know exactly what that means. Most fans that I found out there seem to think he's not that, um, which is interesting for a variety of different reasons and causes I found. At the end of the day, I think the King universe is interested always in the idea of an implicit evil in something. And the implicit evil I think we see in Castle Rock is this character. In season one, this character shows up and terrible things happen. In season two, this character shows up and suddenly there's a cult worshiping them, which then leads 400 years to terrible things happening.
1: Sort of in the way that Pennywise occupies Derry played by the same magnificent Bill Skarsgård, this is Castle Rock's version of that.
0: I do think there's something to the idea that where this character comes, there is an evil that follows. And the thing that attracts this character to this spot, I think is the lake, at least defined when when we see uh, Tim Robbins' characters pop say that, hey, this is a gateway, it's a door to other where's and when's, other dimensions, I paraphrase that, roughly that quote, saying that this, this lake is on somehow in like an interdimensional nexus. On a philosophical level, what does it mean to have a being of potentially pure malice and pure evil? One, it means that there is a thing called good and evil, and that these forces exist in the world and they they, they operate on different poles. And that on one end, there is going to be evil and evil is going to enact its horrible machinations. On a very pragmatic level, this seems to make sense because after all, bad shit fucking happens.
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. It really
0: does. So evil exists in the world, so what's its cause? And in at least the Castle Rockian sense, one way that we can internalize it is the corruptive influence of this mysterious hooded dimension traveling prisoner who could maybe be the man in black.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just a final thought here on the show as we get close to wrapping up. Um, I really enjoyed this season of Castle Rock. I want to call out, uh, especially the performance by Lizzie Kaplan as Annie Wilkes. Uh, It's not every day you have to uh, resurrect a character that another actor won an Oscar for. And Kathy Bates did win an Oscar for her performance in Misery. Uh, and so for Lizzie Kaplan to take that on and give an origin story for her, this character is brave. And she did it with, you know, flying colors. I, I thought the performance was magnificent, especially in the grounded way that it portrays her mental illness uh, and how she copes with it. I felt like it was uh, much healthier than most... Uh, You know, stories will portray mental illness as simply quote unquote crazy. Um, So that I thought was really powerful. She was the beating heart of this show for me. Um, The ending was heart wrenching because even though we know that she grows up to be a ruthless villain, uh, she was always sympathetic. Even if you couldn't get on her level, even if you couldn't fathom the, the things that she was capable of you could feel the sort of love running through her veins for joy and you could feel the trauma that she had been through. So I just want to celebrate that performance. Um, Do you have any final thoughts on Castle Rock? No, I hope there's a season three.
0: I have tons of thoughts about it, but not enough time to dive into them. If uh, you out there enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, want to hear more discussion on Castle Rock, please let me know on Twitter. I will happily plan more Castle Rock episodes, I'd love to do character case studies on season two and season one. I'd like, I could go episode by episode and pick apart the imagery. I adore this show. I think it's exceptional. Love to talk about it more. So let me know what you think out there, dear Midnight Myth listeners. And until next time, listen to the wheel of Ka. be kind, be kind.